0: Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of PHS Talks where we bring in not just one guest, but two. Namely, Ms. Ricciardi and Ms. Shoup, two biology teachers here at Princeton High School who, as you'll know if you've ever taken one of their classes, are very good friends. When I took a biology course with Ms. Ricciardi last year, I was delighted by how often Ms. Shoup popped into our room, which is practically adjoining hers, the two are only separated by a small supply closet, To ask a question, or to gather lab materials, or to explain why a mouse that had found its way into our classroom liked to hug the wall as it moved. The behavior, by the way, is called thigmotaxis, and rodents display it when they want to lessen the number of angles where a predator can attack them from and stay low-profile in the process. As one 1994 paper memorably puts it, thigmotaxis can be used as an index of anxiety in mice. Anyway, Ms. Ricciardi's class, like any high school biology class, has to summarize an overwhelming amount of material. Biology literally means the science of life. Still, even a first peek at the world of this science sparks a million questions, not just about cellular functions and food webs, but also about things like love and empathy and rodents and robots and what it means to be alive in the first place. I asked Ms. Ricciardi and Miss Shoup a few of these questions, and their answers are absolutely amazing. To be honest, I recorded this conversation at the end of the last school year, but rather than publish it over the summer, I wanted to be sure that PHS's incoming crop of freshmen could get a chance to listen to these two talk about some of the most interesting classes you can take at our school and what lessons you can generalize from them. Mr. Chardy and Ms. Shoup play off of each other here so well, with so much infectious joy and genuine love for the subject they teach. I've talked for long enough right now, but I hope I've convinced you to give this whole thing a listen, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I'm Alexander Margulis. You're listening to PHS Talks. <laughs> It's so nice to meet with both of you. To start off, I want to ask a very general question, which is how did you become acquainted with biology? And when did you start to realize that it was something you wanted to pursue as maybe a career?
1: When I was in seventh grade, one of the projects we had to do was an insect collection. And so we had to like capture, Steph's laughing at me over here, but I had, you had to like capture and then pin and organize like from seven different orders of insects and I just thought it was the coolest thing and then I ended up like in high school doing biology I took AP environmental science I did like a study like not abroad but it was called Maine Coast Semester and I did school at a farm for a semester and we learned all about how our food was grown and it just kind of grew from there I was just really interested in the environment and understanding why the world worked the way we did and so I studied entomology in college and Research wasn't for me. I love sharing my ideas about about biology and why it's fascinating and how we can better understand our world around us and our bodies, and so I just ran with it. How about you, Shoop?
2: That was the nerdiest answer <laughs> in the entire universe.
1: Um, I think if you're a biology teacher, you have a nerdy answer for what you got into the thing.
2: I'm gonna test that statement <laughs> right now. My dad, was a biologist. My mother was a teacher and I loved both so much. Here we are.
1: That's nerdy too.
2: It is not. You're fine. It's and your super less nursing. nerdy than I have an insect collection. and it Inspired me to love moths. Like,
0: <laughs> I've i heard you are a pretty cool high schooler though. I'm sure you are as well. But did, you scored like one thousand two hundred varsity basketball points. That's
2: really weird that you know Which is that. Just
0: crazy. Yeah, I did some research before the episode, <laughs> and I was I was blown away by. by yeah, the I
2: was a skill. really good basketball player. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah I I she played still
1: division one basketball. Yeah.
0: That's insane. Providence. Uh, so. And you you help out the the school with basketball coaching as well I did
2: for a while yeah and then my wife and I we had kids and the basketball schedule is just really tough so you've got practices at night and you've got games at night so I had I had to make a tough call I really loved it I enjoyed it very much but my kids are my everything I give you guys you guys are my school kids I give you my everything during the day and then I give them what I can you know my everything at night so balancing those two things is hard
1: we have lots of children yeah we care about
0: it's uh, very sweet. Mm-hmm. So you two both study either entomology or uh, biology in college, yeah? Mm-hmm. And then you get to Princeton High School at some point. Uh, and uh, although I've seen lots of teachers who teach the same subject be relatively close, you two have a friendship that's like very special, I think, and very noticeable <laughs> when you're in either of your classes. How did that come about?
2: Because she's my work wife. Yes, yeah,
1: we're each other's work wives. Yes. I mean, she's not really my wife, let's get that clear. <laughs> Um, We spend enough time with each other. We do. Our friends like each other's wives. Our kids are like really close friends. Yeah, they're in the same like like Mm -hmm. same grade, everything. So I have twin boys in fifth grade, and she has Huxley, who's in fifth grade. So they're all really close. And Peyton, it's a wonderful addition in fourth grade. So they're all they're all like each other's best friends.
2: They're like a little pack of animals. And, And then we, by proxy, love each other too.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, we, yes.
1: We introduced them to each other i think kind of it was at
2: the birthday party i know See? so yeah
1: we we're and we were each other's pandemic families mm-hmm. like we hung out with each other and they were each other's play dates and friends and helped us get through everything so yeah we're the shoop cardi party we're a family yeah <laughs> true, true story
0: that's yes. that's a very fun context to be teaching in i think yes. uh, and to be learning in from personal experience Uh, So kind of jumping off there, I want to talk about what you have been doing in terms of teaching biology during uh, your time at this school. First of all, something I think is really interesting, uh, and that's something that was pursued this year and maybe in years past, I'm not quite sure. Tell me about uh, kind of integrating LGBT plus concepts into the classroom and how it can be done and why that's important to do.
1: You want me to take this one? I want you to start with it because you did all kinds of things with the state for it. I so. did. I yeah. did. I
2: write. I was helping write some curriculum for the state because there is a new law that not everybody, although they should know this, not everybody does this. That in every classroom you are supposed to be teaching about LGBTQ plus positive curriculum. It's supposed to be happening. Um, I wish it was happening more. So we integrated a lesson where we generally talk about that with membranes, right? We wanted it to be more kind of integrated and not just this random thing out on a limb. We wanted it to kind of be more seamless. So we integrate it in a couple different ways. One of them is with membranes and then we talk about how you have the phospholipid and then the fatty acid chains and how you could have like different types of bonds. So when you have the two, I'm holding two fingers, I don't know how to describe this, but I'm holding two fingers up in the same direction, right? Parallel fingers in the same direction, yeah. So that would be cis versus if I rotate my wrist and point one up and one down, that would be trans. So we could talk about these types of bonds in a molecule, and then we can apply that to heteronormativity and what it means to be cis or what it means to be transgender. So we thought that that was a really neat way of kind of integrating that. And then we also talked about karyotypes where you look at how many chromosomes are in this image that you have. And we could link this to people with uh, aneuploidy. So there's quote unquote normal, which I don't really like that word, but normal amounts of chromosomes versus quote unquote abnormal, right? So we try to get away from that terminology too. And we will use things like aneuploidy are not the, the, most regularly occurring number of chromosomes that you see so you could have somebody with Down syndrome right and then we came up with that i think you i think you came up with that the the dinner party where we talked about diversity and who we want to sit at a dinner table with you want to talk about that one
1: so there's a lot of awesome scientists and it used to be kind of the norm that when people thought of a scientist they would think of like a white male and so i think it's important to understand that Anyone can be a scientist. And there's a great diversity of people of different races and and gender identities and different ethnicities that are all contributing to this great body of knowledge that is biology. So in like several different classes, we use this list that I came up of all these diverse geneticists and students kind of research about them and figure out what they contributed to the field because biology is constantly growing. There's so much new information always. And so it's nice to see that everybody's contributing and how you can find yourself in
0: scientists that are out there. And that that body of work that they're all contributing to uh, is biology. And as a result, biology is constantly changing. And I wonder what it's like to teach a science that is so constantly being updated. Like a big thing we discussed this year in our class was structure determining function. And the AP curriculum is relatively clear that proteins folded in exactly one way, do one jab as a result of that. But the new protein research that's coming out right now is finding that our cells are actually filled with malleable proteins that do a ton of different jobs based on, obviously still their structure is important to their function, but they do a ton of different jobs because of their flexibility. And they form clusters of proteins that are super fluid called condensates that do a lot of different cellular jobs. right? And I I think the whole curriculum that you're teaching, which is the AP curriculum, which shapes a lot of your classes, comes from two developments in the last century, which is number one, the theory of evolution, uh, and then number two, the discovery of DNA as a genetic material and how it works. So I guess my question here is in two parts one, how beholden do you feel like you are to the AP curriculum? How much do you think you're allowed to experiment? I guess this builds off what you two just talked about in terms of the new things you're doing. And two, do you think that the curriculum will or should change to talk about these new developments that are happening?
2: Well, all right. So one bio is so neat because it literally is right. Break it down. Biology, right? Study of life. It literally encompasses everything. It encompasses how you look, how you think, how you feel, your hormones, it's your environment. It is literally everything. So to try to cram that all into one year is almost impossible. And yet we do it. You know, at times it might not be pretty, but dang it, we get it done, right? It's, It's done. So the thing is, we make as much time as we can for really cool labs that we don't necessarily have to do, but we want to, because we want to impart the joy that biology brings to us, to you guys.
1: The Panda Lab. Yeah, with the Eliza simulation. That's like a right? cool opportunity. It's so
2: neat. It's such a great encompassing lab where you look at conservation. You look at antibodies. You look at biotech. You look at hormones. Like You look at all of these different things. And that's really what biology is. It's not just this one narrow thing. Now, your question was asking about genomics. That's changing, because the more we learn the more we add to it, right? Mm -hmm. So, but I think for that part, the most fundamental piece, the central dogma, DNA to RNA to proteins, mostly holds true. Of course, you get you know retroviruses, HIV, of course, everything. There's always gray areas, but that's the most basic thing. But bio is constantly changing. When we went to high school and I asked the question of, hey, if we're only learning about one strand of the DNA, what's the other strand? Mm -hmm. My teacher said, junk DNA.
1: Oh yeah. That's fascinating. I still refer to it kind of like, they used to call it junk. Right. That's how I learned it. But now we know that there's all kinds of things like enhancers mm-hmm. and like uh, promoters mm-hmm. and all these non-coding pieces of DNA that have jobs. We just didn't know what they were. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's so still, bio is changing, but yeah. you
2: learn, you adapt, you integrate. It's life.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you roll with it, man. And I think the college board recognizes, at least with biology, we, I know since both of us have been teaching AP bio for a long time. We've gone through many iterations of the AP biology curriculum. They've changed it a bunch and they're trying to squeeze that entire body of knowledge down into a a year-long course. And so they have to make choices about what should or shouldn't be included. And there's definitely been a shift away from some of the like organismal type aspects of things like learning all your plant parts and your plant tissues or memorizing all the different major phyla of animals that used to be part of it and unfortunately to the some organ extent systems. organ systems mm-hmm. kind of got cut out in a, in exchange for upping the amount of cellular work mainly things with DNA and how it mm-hmm. works and also cellular communication mm-hmm. because that those have been like areas where Biotech. it's taken off yeah and so there's a lot more knowledge now and if you're going to to work to the level of like a ecosystem you got to understand how you work on the smallest scale too so how do your cells actually work and how do they they function together to make tissues to make organs to do all that stuff there's just not enough time but we do try to tie it all in to like cool examples like we haven't cut organ systems out because there's just too many cool things we weren't going to not teach you about the nervous system, which I know you really liked.
0: Oh, I did really like that. <laughs> I have questions about that later. Uh, <laughs> uh, but on on what you were just saying about all of this knowledge that's compressed down into a year, it is still pretty, I mean, not super in-depth, but like pretty in-depth knowledge uh, about biology and a pretty, pretty extensive look at, at how life functions uh, in some respects. And you're teaching lots of kids who are not going to go on to become biology majors who are not going to go on and even go into the sciences. What are you hoping that they get out of your class?
1: Oh, so I That's always say my goal, and this is always my goal and like tell parents at back to school and I, everybody is to help raise more scientifically literate citizens because even if you're not going to go pursue science as a career that you could see a news article and understand a bit of the science have it presented to you at a level that you could understand and that you have enough background knowledge that you can identify ooh, there is a misconception presented in this or this isn't presented in a good way or if you hear a story like the news media likes to make these big outstanding headlines about things and make these big generalizations to be like, well, if I was to actually look at the study, ooh, it's only based on like 15 test subjects. Ooh, I'd know from biology that that's too small of a sample size to draw this wide of a conclusion or something like that. To be able to think critically about science and understand a little bit more about how your body works and how you fit into the bigger picture of the ecosystems around you so you can make better choices.
2: Yeah, I would definitely piggyback off that. I think making critical thinkers is super important um, to realize that not for me personally, I think it's really important to model for my students that I'm a human and I make mistakes and I own them every time. So if something goes wrong, hey, come to me, tell me, I want them to learn that they don't always have to be right. That's really important to me because in friendships, in relationships, you know, with your children, like you are a person and you are fallible and that is okay. I also want them to take away from that, that they have to be open-minded, right? And to be able to say, oh, wow, I, I did do that wrong. And here's what I need to do to correct that. And I also want them to be proactive. And I think the time management that we have in this course and the scaffolding that we provide in this course provides everybody the opportunity to succeed. And I think that's really important for an AP class. Everybody is welcome. Everybody has a chance to find success and everybody will be loved.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really nice. And then, (laughs) of course, there are some kids who get that and then do end up falling in love with biology itself and then go on to pursue careers in biology. And there, I guess, let me ask a question first. Never mind. Again, I'm going to edit this out. I'm going to sound so smart. You, you don't even no, know. I'm going to sound you so Listen, don't,
2: you don't even have to worry about that because, again, everybody's fallible. Yeah. And you, you keep that and you say, like, look, here's <laughs> an example of what Chup just said. Check and case and point. Like, we don't have to constantly be perfect in everything we do. And I think that drive here, especially here, is so toxic. It is okay to leave those mistakes in. Those are genuine, they are wonderful. And they're okay. And that's
1: part of science. I mean, science really is a, it's a cycle. You have a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis. Oh, maybe the data doesn't turn out the way you like. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It's just, it didn't match what you originally thought. Now you got to come up with a new explanation, a new question, a new thing to test. So you always are building off mistakes. Yeah. I mean, how many, I mean, different models had to be built of DNA before they came up with the right one or anything like that. You just got to kind of work with it.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And my God, science, sometimes you learn the most about a failure. Yeah. And we seem to kind of demonize that. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And if that's the one thing that my kids take away from my course, then they can apply that to their whole life. Cause that's... I'm not just teaching a scientist. I'm not just teaching a biologist. I'm teaching a person. Yeah. So grow, man.
0: That's very, very cool. I'm, I'm going to pull an annoying, but what is a person on you now? Uh,
2: <laughs> so deep. So I'm deep. sure
0: you've heard these numbers before. These are no way new numbers to, to you. But besides some of like the neurons uh, in our brain, uh, I think in the frontal cortex, cells in our body like completely replicate themselves and the old ones die out every seven to 10 years. So based on your knowledge of biology and what you want to think about biology as well, are we reducible to something biological? Is there some through line of our life about who we are that comes directly from the cells that make up our body and what is it
1: it's so deep well i would say i think it's hard as humans we really like to organize stuff and we like to fit things every into nice little neat boxes like what is a species or we like to define things, like going back to the cis and trans. That there has to be like this box that you fit into, where it's biological male versus biological female. And we know that biology doesn't yeah, binary, do that. Non-binary. No, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing works that way. There's a spectrum with everything. So I don't necessarily know if we can reduce everything down and be like, this is the the essence, or this is the one thing that that creates life because there's a lot of different ways that life comes about and is organized and works. And I think that's, it's hard. We want, as humans, we want to, but I don't think we can.
2: Yeah. And (laughs) a lot of things, things. yeah. And you like, you're saying a lot of things are on a spectrum and it doesn't always have to be black or white. It can Mm -hmm. be a lot of gray, right? Like what is life? Our, our egg cells are living. Sperm cells are living. Can they live without us? debatable. Like there's all these really cool debates that you can have about that. If you're asking, you know, what is the essence of a person, that is a I think a much bigger conversation than just
0: two people can answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of, of of course. So maybe we can personalize the question. When I think of myself, if I sit there and think about it for long enough, I conceptualize myself as a consciousness inside a body. And I know it isn't this way for everyone, but there are just so many. <laughs>
2: it's easy. I can define myself yeah. in one word, a mom.
0: That's, <laughs> that's it. When
2: I conceptualize what I am, I'm a mom, <laughs> just, just a mom. Yeah. And I apply that to everything. And that's, I mean, literally, <laughs> it doesn't get that deep. I'm just a mom.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. but is said mom, mm-hmm. does said mom feel like a consciousness inside a body full of cellular mechanisms that they are barely holding the reins over? Or does said mom feel like like a full holistic person where their body is like intimately tied to their understanding of the world? Like, I love my body. I'm glad I have it. But at the same time, I feel like I very much cannot control it.
2: Mm-hmm. So that's interesting because I very much have control over my body. Very much so. But it might be because of my, like, backgrounds in being an athlete. I do okay multitasking. So I can have, you know, one lab that's being put up and one lab that's being taken down and one lab that I'm grading. And then I, you know, can help my wife, make dinner, or I can go ahead and fill some laundry. And then there's a lot that I can fit into a day. I try not to overlap them all the time, but I feel like if I have a list that helps me make control. Now my version of control is very different than your version of control, <laughs> and I think that that we struggled with that at the beginning we to did. figure that so we out. we balance each other out. We do.
1: <laughs> but there was
2: a like any relationship, there yeah. was a little bit of a push and pull, and we needed to kind of figure each other out. And not everything was like sparkling and perfect. Yeah. Um, you know. But we know each other. You yelled so at well me. Now. I yelled at you, and then we, yeah. we cried and we figured it out, and it yeah. was fine. It's just part of it, but. Yeah, I personally think I have control over my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I have control over most parts of my life. Now, do sometimes things spin? Of course they do, right? There Sometimes you're like, oh my God, this is all falling to poop in a handbasket. But for the most part,
1: that's how I feel. And maybe that just comes with age too. That's why it's old women.
2: <laughs> I'm only 29. Put that on the record.
0: 29. Miss Shoop is 29. That's right. <laughs> I've never
1: (laughs) aged. Yeah, never aged. But yeah, I would say probably when I was in high school, I felt like I didn't quite know. I didn't have all the skill sets. And I think that comes with practice and making mistakes and Mm. learning from your mistakes and all those things that we talked about that it's that it's okay to try to figure out. But I do agree that it's like crazy to think about how much is going on in your body and how much is coordinated. And when things don't feel balanced, how it can spiral out into other aspects of your life.
0: Uh, I'm going to tell a story now. OK. Um, okay. So sometimes after i had been studying biology content, like I had been staring into a textbook about and like learning about cells and cell theory for a very long time, I would start to look at the world and people in slightly different ways like for example i have this memory of sitting on a bench outside of the school about halfway through a year like right after a bio test and i was sitting there and this guy that i had kind of uh, a ill-advised adolescent crush on at the time walked past and i was like oh and he like gave me a sheepish wave and i like Felt, obviously, like the the weird emotional things that go on with teenagers. Uh, And then my immediate reaction to that was weird. Look at that evolutionary quirk. At some point, like a clump of cells, like another clump of cells, and that was advantageous for their survival. And then eventually that became a system by which cells in my body secrete hormones that make me feel things. So what are the ethical implications of treating biology strictly literally and looking at people and seeing a system of communicating cells?
2: Well, okay, so I think biology has so many, again, applications just with the content knowledge, but then also the deeper application of what that means, right? And like you were saying, we're constantly trying to put things into nice, neat little boxes. And I'm, I might go on a tangent here, but this idea of let's talk about human sexuality, right? This is the class that we can actually talk about that in because you can link it to biological sex. And then you can link it to, oh, but what is gender? And then you can link it into, again, all these different things. And then the question is, if really everything is about passing on your genes, right? How do you rationalize having someone who is gay, lesbian? And those are driving questions that scientists don't actually have answers for, but they're looking for them. And one really cool hypothesis is, hey, all you heteronormative people have a totally butt backwards. We came first (laughs) and you all evolved from us. Mm -hmm. So it's this idea of early on, in this primordial soup it didn't matter who you were loving it was just get your genes in there so potentially is this idea that it didn't matter who you were reproducing with and then as it kind of happened maybe maybe then you have this sexuality aspect that kind kind of comes out of that so there's all these really cool hypotheses to look at and could you test it and That's the beauty of science. It's testable and um, you can set up models and potentially look at them. So, you know, when you're sitting there on that bench and you're thinking, oh, my God, there might be so much more going on than just a clump of cells. You might be picking up on, without even realizing it, their immune system. Mm -hmm. Right. Because people are, they've done studies where they actually show that people who are attracted to somebody else, what do you love? One of the things you love is the way they smell. Why would you love the way they smell? Because of their biome, their bacterial biome. And (laughs) what is, it's crazy. And not only that, but then you look at it and they are actually then, from an immunological standpoint, different than yours. Why? Why would you be attracted to that? To give your baby the best Mm -hmm. variation possible.
0: That's wild. It is. But the thought that, I feel attracted to someone because of their immune system is (laughs) not for me a particularly comforting one, right? Like I want to believe there is some like ineffable love. Like I'm not, I'm not a strictly religious person, but I don't think of myself as necessarily an atheist. Like I like to, I like to imagine that there's something more just because it makes Mm -hmm. everyday activities easier, right? Like if, if you're just thinking about humans as, again, as people driven solely by biological mechanisms and solely by the mechanisms we understand. And if there, if there are things biologically that point to us being more than clumps of molecules, temporarily resisting homeostasis, let me know. But <laughs> is there a problem with that? And, and does it cause you to succumb to maybe the very worst of like consequentialists? No, nonsense?
2: no, I don't think we are yeah. anything more than cells. No, you mm-hmm. might feel very <laughs> different. I think we're just clumps of cells. And I, that's enough for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That, that is enough for me. I don't need to believe in something bigger than me. I, that is enough for me because that alone makes me value life so much more. But again, everybody gets to make that choice themselves. But if you're asking me, Steph Shoup, what I think, just being is enough. And if I walk up to Rachel, I'm like, hey, babe. I really like your immune system. Like that for me is enough. That brings me joy. That brings me happiness. And it makes me appreciate every single day with my kids more. Yeah.
1: I think what you're, you're hitting on is this big debate in biology that's existed for quite some time about the idea of nature versus nurture and how much is just biologically due to nature, due to our DNA, due to our cells, versus how much is due to our environmental experiences. And I think the cool thing about what we're learning is that they're not mutually exclusive in that nature is influenced by our environment and how there's this whole new field of epigenetics that we don't fully understand how different things in our environment, whether it's chemicals or whether it's stress or feelings and pleasure and things like that, how that can change the chemicals that control whether our genes are turned on and off. Mm -hmm. So you should take comfort in that. We're not just, I mean, we are what nature makes us, but we're also our experiences. And so we're incredibly like complicated organisms and understand that like there's, there's beauty in that diversity. There's beauty in all of those differences and how, how our bodies work. And so that, Yes, you can see us as the selves. Yes, you can see us as like factors of our environment or however we want our experiences to be, but we're shaped into who we are. And so it's not just, it's not just what's in a it, textbook. So much more to learn. Mm-hmm.
0: We're going to move okay. healthily into the realm of speculation, which we've already kind of been doing. I think a lot about life on other planets, as I'm sure lots of people do. Does it look like us? Does it not look like us? They, they, we've seen in, in deep sea trenches that have chemical components that are similar to watery moons, that it's life that looks different, but is still very much regulated by the same rules of our life and our cells how how could that life look different like what what are the mechanisms by which that would be there's lots of things that could be different
1: i mean just like any of your abiotic factors that are on a different planet so your composition of gases your level of gravity and pressure all of that stuff can influence like structurally how it Any type of cell would be, and whether or not they even have the same carbon-based molecules. I was going to say,
2: yeah, it could be sulfur-based. It could be (laughs) sulfur-based.
1: Whether or not they would still have carbohydrates, proteins, lipids, and nucleic acids building them up, or what they would use—like it could be totally, totally different. So no, I don't. I don't necessarily think that an alien's going to look like what you think of with aliens, like the weird bald long skinny people like
2: that you say they're called grays they're called grays (laughs) probably not what it's gonna be but you never know (laughs) no no i agree completely um the if you look at the stars and you realize i mean if you the the sad thing is here in new jersey you don't really get to see the stars right (laughs) But if you go out anywhere in the Midwest and you see the stars, it is absolutely gobsmacking when you think about the reality of how tiny you are in the cosmos. You are and that's that to me, again, going back full circle, that makes me feel even more special that I have this opportunity that all of those pieces of DNA and the methylated DNA got together and gave me a chance here, you know, like I think it's so cool because you look out there and you go, holy Darwin, there's gotta be, there's gotta be so much out there that we have no even idea of. And it's so exciting and so fascinating. Again, it just makes me grateful.
1: It's just amazing. It is life is just amazing. It is that that, we're on this little speck in our solar system, Mm -hmm. and we have so much diversity, but we have like these unifying things that are unite that's uniting all of life, like our cells and our DNA and and basic stuff like that. But that we've evolved to be such unique organisms. It's Mm -hmm. just amazing. It's really, and I'm sure it's going on somewhere else out there. What it looks like, I don't know, but I'm sure there's. Similar
0: principles. It's, a, it's generally a good thing to be alive. That's a, that's a nice viewpoint to have. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's really, it's really cool. It's cool to be here. Okay. So you two have been teaching here for uh, a relatively long time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think is the biggest thing students at this school have taught you?
1: Ooh. Oh, I know.
2: That's a good question. Patience. (laughs) It taught me patience. I was not a patient person until I became a teacher. Um, And then compassion. I don't know if I was as compassionate as I would have been if I hadn't become a teacher. You, your whole family makes fun of me all the time. My family makes fun of me all the time. Like we watch movies and I'll just start crying.
1: (laughs) I'm just, I
2: just. I've become a super emotional person. And
1: and I've seen this evolve since <laughs> working with you. Yes,
2: yeah. it has. It has. Yeah, patience and I guess my capacity for the empathy that yeah. I feel for what my students are going through now.
1: Yeah, I would say empathy as well. That's something like having just a better understanding and seeing how people develop over time, just the understanding of what everyone's needs are and how people grow emotionally and physically and and things like that and helping me understand different perspectives. I think it's really easy to get caught in your own little bubble and understanding of how everything works with people you're closest to, but seeing lots of different students and lots of different needs helps you Helps you empathize on lots of different levels and try to better help those that you serve
2: as a teacher. I mean, our uh, our
1: community or wherever. Even just
2: thinking about our Excel program at the very beginning, it was a very different bear. Very different bear. We used to get freshmen and those poor babies would just get slammed. I mean, it'd be paper, 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 Mm -hmm. paper, 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 paper. And they're like, I'm tired. you're like, yeah,
1: here's your reward, paper, paper, paper,
2: paper. (laughs) It was just so much. And I think the larger conversation about what is stress and what it looks like and how it manifests, I think was a conversation that needed to happen, quite frankly, and needed to be brought up, and discussions needed to occur for there to be any type of solutions on our end. Now, we're not saying we have all the solutions, but I think we've transformed that program where now the papers are once a marking period, right? Again, specifically Excel. Um, and then homework wise, we've really cut back on what it yeah, used to look like. So totally, have, yeah. yeah, totally. I think we've learned to kind of take a giant step back.
1: What do we really need to do mm-hmm. in order to develop those, like the knowledge and the skills that mm-hmm. kids need to be successful? how are we gonna get there, make better choices about what type of assignments we give, how we assess students. I think, yeah, we've, the science department in general has made big progress in that over the time that I've been here.
2: Yeah, and I'm really proud of us for that because I think we do that exceptionally well.
1: I agree.
0: That's super nice, yeah. I, I mean, the, your class has been a blast this year. Oh, I thanks. that. thanks. <laughs> and again, I think this empathy is one of the very most important things to have as a human being right and I think like pretty much the answer tends to be empathy like looking to species that are not us requires a truly ridiculous amount of empathy Yeah, uh, Yeah. because it's impossible to put yourself in the brain of like a dolphin but it's still important to do and as well uh, in terms of integrating like uh, LGBTQ plus concepts the empathy to listen to someone with gender dysphoria, talk about their experience if you can't experience it yourself. And I think that's why, just to kind of put a bow on the questions I've been asking, it's really cool to imagine yourself as a group of cells and just be grateful that a group of cells assemble themselves into you. But additionally, I think at some point, you have to homogenize those groups of cells into people in order to make it easier to have the empathy to think about people as things that can't be categorized as molecules, and things that should be handled with care emotionally. And I'm sure neither of you are against that, uh, which is not what I'm trying to say here to be clear, um, but is something that I think about a lot uh, the night before bio tests. <laughs> so we started by talking about how you two got acquainted with biology. I'm wondering just to finish it off, uh, what you two think your perspectives would be about the world around you, uh, and what your lives would be like if you had never met you in biology?
2: Oh, if I hadn't met biology, or if yeah. I hadn't met Jane,
0: well, that's that's a whole different story. That that I mean, that would be cataclysmic.
2: <laughs> no, yeah, oh, okay.
0: you <laughs> two you, you are destined to me. You because would have met in any situation.
2: I, I would burn the world down <laughs> without Jane. No, I'm kidding. Um, my life. I can't answer that question Mm -hmm. because from the time I was little, I was out in the woods, Mm -hmm. like in Kentucky, playing in the backyard, being dorky,
1: collecting bugs. So don't (laughs) let me be very clear. It was never bugs because
2: bugs are gross. Um, Write that down, write that down. No, no, bugs are cool. I I was out playing in the woods and looking for. Frogs, not bugs, <laughs> or you know, snakes. <laughs> or playing with my friends, and I was always fascinated, always. And my dad would come home, and he'd bring parasites in jars, and he's like, "Look at this!" And I'd be like, "Ew! Show me more!" You know, it was just—it wouldn't—I can't answer that because it's—it's it's just my—it was my whole life. It was my passion. It was. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I loved learning about it. I love, I still love learning about it. Mm-hmm. I married a biologist. <laughs> I couldn't get enough of it, all right? She's phenomenal. Like she's a researcher over at the university, just like the coolest lady ever, um, you know? And we're raising kids to love biology yeah. because it's just, it's part of, it's part of me. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely. The nature and the nurture. So similar type of thing. Like I feel like I was just destined to do something sciencey, I think, or teach one of the two. I mean, that's my mother was a elementary school teacher. And then she went and worked at a science museum and did their programs. So science and education were always something that I was nurtured (laughs) with going outside, having a garden exploring looking at all the like the different things that we see like around us and my kids are the same way we spend time outside we go for hikes we do all these types of things we live in this great big world and I think we need to try to understand it and figure out our place in it like you've been talking about and trying to just see the there's just so much beauty in it and I think that's what really draws me in biology biology is beautiful life is beautiful and in everything whether it's a cell or the scale of a butterfly wing like everything about it is is beauty and i don't have time for it now but i used to be very artistic things like that and so that always caught my eye so i think biology just it's beautiful like it's beautiful
2: it is and even the habitats like your your mom your mom was showing us pictures the other day (laughs) of the of the right outside her house right just gorgeous pictures of the sunset it's just something that you just yeah beauty
1: beauty Beautiful. Yeah. It pulls you in. That's why I like biology.
0: Thank you two so much for, for sharing that beauty with the school.
1: Yeah. Uh, Thank you. We hope you make PHS a more beautiful place.
0: Definitely. A more beautiful.
1: creative. Girl, place. look at me. I sure do. <laughs> <Are> we <creative> hope <laughs> that you guys all come away with different perspectives. No, you think it's about? awesome. Yeah.
0: <laughs> PHS Talks is a part of the multimedia section of the tower. Princeton High School's student-run newspaper. It is written, produced, and edited by me, Alexander Margulis, with music by Otto Truman. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.